Welcome to Red Sky Fuel for Thought podcast. This is episode four and I'm your host, Nancy Anderson. Whether you are a B2B or B2C brand, we are now operating in a person-to-person world. Audiences are craving connections and they're expecting the brands that they engage with to lead with purpose. In this episode of Red Sky Fuel for Thought podcast, we make the case for person-to-person or P2P communications. Then, stick with us for the end of the episode when we welcome Jeffrey Whitford, Head of Sustainability and Social Business Innovation and Branding at Millipore Sigma. Jeff was recently named one of Fast Company's most creative people in business and is also the PR News CSR Professional of the Year. He joins us later for the Red Questionnaire. But first up, let's welcome Executive Vice President Linda Descano. Linda is a merged media strategist and conversation architect here at Red Havas US and will guide our roundtable conversation today. Hey, Linda. Hey, Nancy. How are you? Doing good. Really excited about today's conversation. Who's joining us and what are you going to cover? So today, our roundtable conversation is going to focus on why we believe the future of communications is person-to-person or P2P, as you said earlier. This is the subject of a recent white paper that Red Havas published, and it's also a topic that we've been exploring further, particularly with respect to the impact on B2B brands with Provoke Media. You know, when our work lives and our home lives were all but tossed into a blender in March, we witnessed a really drastic change in the way we work and the way we interact with with our colleagues, with our clients, with partners, suppliers, vendors. And the same goes for the way we run our households, right? Everything from how we purchase groceries to how we educate our children has transformed. So if there was anything to be gained from this changed communication landscape, it's that we're, we're quickly reminded of the true humanity that we all share. We are people first and foremost, and that's the shift we want to really explore, that whether you are a B2B brand or a B2C brand, at the core, it's all about people talking to people. So joining me today is Arti Shah, who's the executive editor at Provoke Media, Rachel Sampson, who's the managing director of Red Havas in the UK, Patty Sullivan, who leads the B2B practice at Red Havas in the US, And last, but certainly not least, our fearless leader, James Wright, the global CEO of Red Havas and global chair of the Havas PR Global Collective. So Nance, I'm gonna turn to our round table and get this conversation started. Let's go. James, let's start the conversation with you. Over the course of 2020, Red Havas has published a number of white papers exploring the impact of the pandemic, and protest on the communications landscape for business. The latest white paper in this series, you know, basically, you know, challenges businesses to say, forget about B2B or B2C. We should all be thinking about P2P, meaning person-to-person communications. So set the stage for us. Thanks, Linda. Okay, so historically, many B2B brands didn't really engage with their end users. They also didn't always apply B2C best practices. Um, and that was, but that was beginning to change pre-pandemic and shift to embrace the end user in a more strategic way. But what we've now seen is a move through the gears to very deliberately accelerate towards recognizing and speaking to the consumer directly. So why is that? Well, people today are now craving connection like never before. 
Um, and there's much more interest in how brands and businesses are reacting to issues of the day, whether that's social, economic, and obviously health issues. That in turn leads to a greater expectation, even of those B2B companies, for a more personalized, customized experience delivered through the communications channels that those consumers, those end users are using daily. Very simply, uh, B2B companies more than ever have had to need, need to think of the person, not just of the problem of the company. So we believe there's a great opportunity here for brands, particularly in the B2B space, to step into a more human and relatable space to engage and attract a bigger audience. So Artie, let's build on what James said. Um, we are partnering with, with your team at Provoke Media to really dig into why the future of communications is P2P. We'd love to hear what you've been hearing from brands and from other agencies on this topic. Yeah, so you know when 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 um, when you and I first talked about this, I thought back to the first time that I heard this, and it was actually 2015, and I actually did a panel called B to B, from B to B to H to H. So that was human to human, of course. And I remember the examples on that panel were um, the 2013 Intel the Beauty Inside campaign, which I don't know if you all remember that took top honors at Cannes Lions. Um, and you know they basically followed the the story of Alex who woke up every day in a different body and that was fine until he fell in love and it was a really poignant story and you can always look it up on YouTube and we also talked about the the Google um, Google's first commercial which was in 2010 and instead of spotlighting their algorithms they put themselves at the at the center of sort of their human story right and it was a it was a you, I don't know if you all remember, but you could see the, the little search bar and the guy was getting, getting a plane ticket to Paris. And then next thing he was looking on going for a date. And then it ends with him looking for like a baby carriage or something. And, um, and it was just so beautiful. But I remember at the time in 2015, there was some pushback to that. And people were saying, well, you know, it, I don't know that this will actually show um, business value. And, and I remember being surprised at how split um, the audience was. And that was in 2015. I think we've come such a long way now in 2020. And I think now there, it, it really, I don't think you would find the, that kind of resistance to, to H2H or, or P2P. Um, and even in, in the story that, that, that our um, reporter Mark Henricks did, there were a few quotes that really stood out to me. And I just want to, you know, say, just reference those quickly. I mean, one was from Jeffrey Whitford um, with um, Millpore Sigma. And I think in light of the Pfizer news that came out yesterday, um, I think this really, it really sort of struck me again, you know, we do need trusted sources of information and hopefully um, that can hopefully steer clear of politicizing this type of information. It's important to have a good quality information so people can make good decisions. Um, so I think this idea that, that P2P actually does equal higher quality information, I think is really interesting and, and can facilitate trust, I think is really interesting in this moment, especially when that's being eroded. Um, I, 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 there are a few other quotes, but I could, I'll, I'll pause and I'll let one of you um, kind of step in and, and talk a little bit about what you're seeing. Well, I, I really like what you just said about facilitating trust because I think that is a great segue into the four rules of engagement for P2P communications that Red Havas outlines in the white paper. And, and Patty, I believe the first was prove your purpose. And I think mm -hmm. that, that builds on this idea of trust transparency and fact. So maybe you can elaborate on that. Sure. Thanks, Linda. Uh, even before the pandemic, uh, as you said already, audiences have made it clear that purpose is important to them. And this expectation has really only grown through COVID-19. 
and it's continued to accelerate in response to issues uh, that are surrounding racial uh, justice that we've all experienced earlier this year. Uh, this is particularly true of millennials and Gen Z, and they prefer to spend their dollars and to work for companies that walk the walk and not just talk the talk. And while we've seen a number of industries have been hit hard by the pandemic, uh, audiences are not prepared to give brands a hall pass uh, during this time. In fact, they expect brands to stay true to their purpose despite the challenging business environment. Uh, for example, uh, in the sustainability space, uh, they don't want uh, companies to abandon these longer term priorities during times of crisis. And brands that put purpose on pause in the short term may very well find themselves uh, that they've lost the public trust and confidence over the long term. And regaining it can certainly be an uphill climb. And you asked uh, specifically about uh, how purpose is playing out in B2B. And I think that's really interesting, uh, a very interesting dynamic at this time. Not so long ago, uh, B2B companies were really not on the radar of the end user. Over time, consumers started to show a growing interest and awareness in how and where their products were made and what they're made of. And now they've gone a step further. They want to see purpose in action up and down the supply chain, not just in the end product. Uh, in fact, uh, a recent uh, survey said that over 20% of Gen Z consumers cite ethics, business, and manufacturing as top purchasing as a, being a top purchasing consideration. And it's clear that B2B brands who put purpose on hold really do so at their own risk. So um, I think, Linda, the fact that you said that, um, you know, never before have employees and employee-generated uh, content been more important is very pertinent because I do feel that it's something that perhaps has been slightly neglected by corporates and organizations in the past particularly because there's such rich storytelling that can come from employees. And also employees can really show the heart of the business as well. So there are some practical considerations in terms of employee generated content, in terms of you know, the fact that employee generated content, it's likely your employee will have eight times the number of followers that some brand feeds do, or it'll be shared more than if something's being shared by a brand. But I think the real beauty of it comes in showing the heart of the company. And as I said, the storytelling elements that can come out. And that not only is attractive to, you know, potential employees or other employees, it can be incredibly attractive to your, um, you know, your audiences, your customers, your stakeholders, your consumers. Um, and we've seen some great examples now of people really embracing that. Um, within our report, we mentioned Starbucks, but that is a great example. They've got great Starbucks partner Twitter feed, um, which has some fantastic stories from their employees. But there are other examples as well. So, for example, L'Oreal really, um, you know, have in the past used their Instagram channels to really highlight um, employee content and that employee story. And I think dovetailing into some of the things that Patty was talking about, if you really want to show a company's purpose at its heart, then show your employees, because if your employees are happy, if they're engaged, if they want to tell a story about you, that probably means that, you know, the heart of the company and the purpose of the heart of the company is in the right place. 
And I think that that echoes what um, we're finding through the Havas Group's Meaningful Brand Survey is the increasing importance of not just as a product like delivering on, you know, what its functionality is, but also is is the brand behind a product, you know, creating broader collective benefit, you know, through good jobs, investing in the community through its hiring practices and, and its behavior around diversity and inclusion. And, you know, from, from everything I've, I've been reading, it sounds like this, well, this is continuing to be a, a, a key focal point, you know, heading into um, the new year. I recently hosted a, a discussion during communications week on behalf of the content council and a, a couple of the, the, the brands that were featured, you know, all talked about like this is something they're hearing from their peers and we're hearing from content council members about you know the um, the, the central role of employees in a corporate communication strategy going forward does anyone else want to build on that before we move on i can talk about this a little bit more linda sure i think that the um the recognition during the pandemic that the most important stakeholder for so many businesses was their employees and their employee, employees wellness and health i think it came to the came to the fore like like never before and also i think it's because the c level execs were also going through the exact same problems that everyone else was and i think that that created an empathy and a connection that just naturally happened because everybody was in the same boat and so therefore kind of the idea that everybody was going through the same thing creates opportunities because all of us are, are together in it. And so every kind of CEO I've spoken to has talked to me about their own personal stories and how they felt a much greater connection to their own employees. And therefore, I think that, that gives you more confidence to want to think about how you can embrace your employees, how you can support them, but then also how you can utilize them as, as brand advocates. And totally to Rachel's point, I mean, you know so much about an organization by talking to its employees. That's where the truth of actually does this organization have a purpose beyond profit does this organization stand by the values that it that, that it talks about and and that kind of purpose beyond profit has been pressure tested in the last nine months like never before and you've seen so many organizations really double down triple down on that kind of purpose and purpose that we, we've used that word a lot over the last five to ten years has really been uh, something that has been almost reimagined as you know, organizations have had to prove it to their staff first before they've been actually be able to prove it to the external world. Well, I think, James, that's a, such an important point because it's not just about saying all the right things. It's about doing the things and and making sure that there's um, there's a, you reconcile what you say versus what you do and you're minding the gap because to your employees are more likely to call you out on it if you're if they're not seeing that follow through and that creates a whole other sort of set of reputational risks that then the company has to manage so it it is something for for brands to be particularly careful about and we've seen you know over the past couple of months where some employees have come front and center and said well you know my company may be saying x but in reality what they're doing is y so you know i think brands have to to manage expectations but be prepared to deliver and be authentic and, and real about where they are versus where they aspire to be. What I would say though, Linda, is that in general, on the whole, organizations, brands, businesses have really stepped up to the plate in terms of taking leadership 
during a time when there was a leadership vacuum and certainly a huge amount of inconsistency in political leadership, mm -hmm. mixed messages, uh, anxiety around what was happening with, um, with racial inequality, a lot of issues. And, they, and you, you only had to take a temperature check of your organization to recognize that you had a role here to play. And I think it's that consistency of the health and wellness messages around wear a mask, social distance, sanitize, wash your hands, was so consistent from the corporate world. And they played a huge part of, I think, you know, fighting this pandemic in the US and all around the world in lieu of a lot of cons uh, inconsistency that was coming out of our, uh, our, a lot of our government organizations. Not all, there are some good examples uh, here and around the world, but you know, I think on the whole, they, they stepped up and they, they were listening to their own staff because they recognized their staff were anxious and they were unsure about what was happening, and that they could play a role in actually supporting them through that, not just in terms of actually supporting them as staff, but actually coming out and actually using their own strategic and technical capability to help solve the problem. Well Can said, I, uh, James. So one of the other uh, rules that uh, we reference in the, the P2P white paper is around partnership marketing. And, and, and particularly that both B2B and B2C plan, uh, uh, brands should really be thinking about partnerships as part of their post-pandemic business strategy. So maybe James and Patty, we could turn it over to you to talk a little bit about the role of partnerships you know, in this new or evolving normal. Sure, I'll start and then um, turn over to James. Uh, so partnership marketing is nothing that's necessarily new in the B2B space. It's been done for a very long time, but really what has broadened is what the very definition of partnership is, because with technology, uh, influencers have become brands in and of themselves. And so there is an opportunity for B2B brands to broaden uh, their uh, audiences uh, by uh, partnering with different influencers. And it's important, of course, to uh, keep an eye on, to be smart about it. Uh, you don't want to uh, pick necessarily a household name. You want to have someone that does have some relevance uh, and is authentic with your brand. And certainly there are a number uh, of brands have done this. So it's it's something that can be done to scale because it might be something that is uh, maybe a little bit difficult for B2B brands uh, to do. And it's kind of a, uh, I look at it as a crawl, walk, run uh, kind of scenario where you can start small and then you can scale from there. James, did you want to add anything? I think Paddy said it out really well. I think that I think it's just the, the the optics on what a partnership can do for a B2B brand and organization is has just changed, right? So you know, it used to be very much a transactional relationship um, where there was a benefit, usually a sales benefit between two organizations. And then there was sort of this evolution, maybe sort of 20, 15 years ago. Uh, where sort of there was also partnerships that looked at sort of CSR programs, you know, how that uh, organization can play a role to, uh, to improve the communities in which it operates. Often it started because that you needed to be able to prove that for a license to operate in, in that country or in that state or in that locality, which then of course evolved into programs that, that enabled them to attract and retain uh, talent, to be able to build stronger 
stakeholder relations and communities and that evolved and became something more of a strategic leader rather than just a, a nice to have because we had to because we had to, to to fulfill our license to operate credentials and now this space has really opened up into to influencers and other organizations that, that that you can align to to better you know bring to life the story of your organization um and and again you know it's all about attracting and holding importantly you know holding creating stronger relationships with with your stakeholders Terrific. So Rachel, I want to turn it over to you to talk about the fourth rule of engagement, which is for brands not to forget about experiential. How mm -hmm. are you advising um, some of the, the, the clients that, that you work with on how to think about the experiences and events in the, the coming year? Yeah, well, I think, again, a really interesting area, Linda, because I think um, one of the dynamics I think we've seen around experiences is that some brands um, who perhaps have been incredibly, you know, forthright and at the forefront front of physical experiences have slightly struggled in the new normal. So, um, you know, MasterCard, for example, they buy a lot of gigs, concerts, properties, etc. Um, and they were very comfortable within that space, inviting both their consumers and their customers to those experiences, but they haven't really managed to turn it into what does it look like virtually? Whereas we've seen smaller brands um, who are perhaps a bit more agile, who have really kind of embraced this challenge and taken it to the fore. And I think one of the things about the virtual um, experience space that it does is it lets small companies be able to hold experiences that many people can participate in at a relatively low cost. So they're not tied into buying big properties or big events. There's a small brewer in the UK called Brewdog who very successfully all the way through lockdown did, you know, virtual pub quizzes, et cetera, et cetera, in a virtual setting, um, which obviously really helped with their consumer engagement. So um, I think this space is still shaking out. And as I said, we've seen some people who are very comfortable in the physical environment, not really transfer over. And I think the winners have actually been the smaller, more agile companies who have used the virtual experience space to their benefit. But I think, um, you know, the possibilities are endless, not just in the business to consumer space, but also in the B2B space. So, for example, pharma companies often have been reliant on events in the past. You know, our own companies within Havas, Havas Links have now got technology where they can facilitate those kind of big B2B events online in a very comfortable way. So I think the possibility that that, that they hold is, is quite enormous. Um, you know, obviously people love large scale events, particularly things like gigs. Everybody wants to get back to normal. But I think the possibilities that virtual events, as I said, will give smaller companies, I think it's going to be a very interesting journey as that unfolds over the next, next year or so. Couldn't agree more. A lot of purpose, especially in the last few years, has been filling a void to help sort of solve some of these social problems um, where in the US in particular, there wasn't um, strong government leadership, whether it's LGBTQ, whether it's climate change, whether it's the pandemic. So, you know, we just had a presidential election here in the US and it looks like there will be an administration change come 2021. And I wonder, and I'm just curious to hear all of your thoughts, you know, will there be less pressure on companies, on brands to sort of quote solve these social issues, um, if we have um, you know some leadership around them out of Washington D.C., or do you think that you know the floodgates have opened and 
now, you know, we, we, there's no turning back. Um, and in fact, companies are going to be expected to step up. You said it more elegantly than, than I would have. Um, um, so who wants to kick it off? Well, Rachel? I wonder, yeah, I was going to start, actually, I wonder looking at the UK perspective, because obviously we are known for having, you know, quite a extensive social security system here. You know, we have, you know, I mean, even though perhaps the government that we have at the moment is not the best ever, generally we have quite socially aware governments compared to those of the US. Um, but I think what's been really interesting here, as James said, is the way that corporates have stepped in. So um, recently there was the issue of free child meals over half term. So the government had been funding free child meals during the summer holiday for those parents that were struggling. They took the funding away. That void was completely filled by individuals, small businesses, but large businesses as well. So, for example, McDonald's, you know, donated many thousands of, of small meals. I can't see a point in the UK where there is a turning back on that now. And that is within a governmental system where there is a large amount of social security. You know, there are catches for people who fall through the system. I agree that there's no turning back uh, now. I think that there is an opportunity within new administration for greater collaboration and problem solving and the greater cooperation with uh, business and the government. But I do think that it goes back to the fact that this is what consumers are demanding. And so, uh, and this did not just start with the pandemic, it was prior to the pandemic, the pandemic just accelerated what was already in motion. And so uh, truly uh, those things are still important to consumers, whether it is the, you know, the, the end product of a you know, consumer brand or going back up the value chain and the supply chain you know, to the very beginning at some of those B2B companies, there really is no turning back because not only will the consumers not accept it, but their employees won't accept it. And we also know that uh, especially millennials and Gen Z, they want to work for companies that have a purpose. And that's very important to them. And there have even been studies that they will uh, rather work for a company, they'll take that purpose over uh, a paycheck in terms of, uh, you know, all things being equal, that's more important to them. So uh, yeah, I think there's no going back. I was also going to say, you know, without sounding too giddy about it, but you know, there are, I mean, even with the, the recent, you know, the news of yesterday that we may have a vaccine on the table, you know, maybe, you know, at some point in the past, you know, that pharmaceutical company may have felt it was okay to charge a very high price for that vaccine. But that just obviously, given the health crisis, but also just in terms of the, you know, the, the general consumer zeitgeist, that just would not be acceptable now. And actually, you know, that, that particular pharma company is stepping in to solve a major societal issue, others will also step in. But yeah, I agree with Patty. I just don't think there's any way back at all. I think that the business uh, roundtables, you know, statement on, on stakeholder capitalism was a real turning point and a springboard for uh, corporate engagement on these issues. And, and throughout the, the, the pandemic, we've seen companies and some of which historically did not engage on social issues really step into James's point. They filled in the, the void and the gap that was left in some of the, uh, uh, ex it, the you know, inconsistency in government messaging. But 
I do think to Patty's point, it's because their employees and their customers and the communities where they operate expect it. And it's enlightened self-interest, right? Mm -hmm. They need a vibrant, healthy, economically, you know, a community in order for them to thrive and to, you know, and, and, and sustain their businesses. Um, and they're acting accordingly. And to see so many companies, the way they've responded to the George Floyd murder and taking of, you know, CEOs and executives talking very personally about their expense uh, experiences. And uh, that was very moving. And even watching some of the more recent interviews over the past weekend, there, there does seem to be a, a deep commitment that this is now the way of life. How they engage may shift because in a new administration, there, there may be greater activity, more formal mechanisms for engaging on these issues, but immigration, climate, you know, equity, inclusion, health, these are all, I mean, they have to do with our economic viability as a country. So we have to solve them. Um, together, and I think business is not going to back away. Plus, there are, there are organizations of the world, and they understand stakeholders outside of the U.S. are also looking for them to to be leaders. And any retraction on some of these big issues will affect their standing in other key markets. I think just in conclusion, there you 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 know you talk we talked about the expectation. Expectations have changed. New generations' expectations have changed about how organizations operate, and frankly, actually, how government op operates. But if you look at the four pillars that the Democratic Party and the administration are, are looking to focus on, you know, you know, obviously the pandemic is number one, the economy, but the other two are climate change and racial equality. So therefore, actually, I would say that the, um, the expectation from government will lift as well. And so just meeting that, board, like that, that sort of borderline of, of, of the expectation isn't going to be enough. And actually, not just that, from a comms and marketing perspective, it's actually an opportunity to take a leadership position and help uh, market to attract an even greater and more meaningful audience to your organization. And I think that is perhaps actually something that will accelerate it even further and, and in, in a progressive way and I think there will also be a lot more consistency around the approaches around those four pil pillars than perhaps we've seen in the sort of schizophrenic nature of the, the, the Trump uh, uh, administration. Now it's not just going to happen overnight either, it's going to happen over time but I think during that time and next year really 2021 will be a year of recovery, recovery of the economy, recovery of health and recovery of confidence in all parts of, of society. But that isn't going to happen immediately in January. It's going to happen over time. And so, you know, the, the, the role that organizations, corporates, businesses and brands can play will continue to be at the forefront of that. And, you know, this whole kind of story with the new vaccine, I think, is, is a great example where, you know, they are playing a role to, to better our life and community, which, you know, we, we critically need right now, you know, whilst we're here in the, in the height of, uh, certainly, you know, whether you call it the second or third wave here in the US, it's, it's pretty, you know, devastating the numbers that we're seeing out of, uh, out of the coronavirus. So, you know, I'm really buoyed by the opportunity that this will give us as marketers, as, as PR and comms people to really lift the, the game on purpose-led communications. And I think P2P is at the center of that. Can I, I, I want to flag, flag one thing that, um, that, Again, I, I don't want to be a cynic, but just something that I think brands need to be aware of is, you know, while while the administration may be much friendlier to things like climate change and racial equality and 
right? Um, we are potentially looking at some Supreme Court decisions in the next few years that may go against um, what's happening with climate change, LGBTQ rights, women's rights. And I think brands need to be prepared that there, there will be an expectation if certain rulings come down that's maybe not favorable with, with you know, the majority. Um, they may be expected to have a statement or to say something or to, or to choose a side. And I think that's something that um, I think most brands should at least have on their radar at this point. And I think that's a great point, Artie, isn't it? And I yeah. think that though the one thing I would say is that that brands and organizations, certainly that you know we work with all around the world, are much more willing today than ever before to take a position. Mm -hmm. And whether that's a position on racial equality, whether that's a position on uh, on pro-life, whether that's a position on on you know environmental sustainability, they are. And I think you know it is incumbent on our industry and and, and associated industries to advise. You know, and counsel them to be prepared, uh, uh, depending on where these stories move to. But I think to your point, Artie, it also requires brands to, to have an always-on, right, issues mm -hmm. management program, probably to a degree that they haven't before, mm -hmm. um, because they, these issues may have been monitored, but not necessarily actively discussed about what would our reaction be, how will we respond, um, and having those discussions, not just you know, at the senior leadership team with the board, because, you know, every company, the board and the executive team may have different views as individuals, right? Uh, there's brands engage with customers with lots of different beliefs. So it's going to be a much more thoughtful and, and nuanced discussion. But I, I do think it, it changes that, that idea of issues management and how you prepare to respond so you're not you can pivot on your front foot if there's a ruling, if something happens versus what, you know, the knee jerk reaction that if you're not thinking and, 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 and really thinking ahead about some of the issues that, that um, are, are being faced. So such an, a, a good point. So my final question is, and, and we touched on this during the discussion, it's about the heightened need for trust and transparency. So maybe we can do a lightning round and each of you share maybe a top do or don't, uh, you know, what, you know, organizations should keep in mind as they adapt both their content and their communication strategy in this, you know, um, never normal period. Patty, would you kick us off? Sure. So I will give you one do and don't. Uh, I And we touched on this a little bit before, but I think it bears repeating. And it's, you do need to continually evaluate your content uh, in the context of what's happening now. More than ever, the situation we're living in and that we're working in is very fluid. And content that was appropriate a few months ago, a few weeks ago, a few days ago may seem out of touch now. So that's uh, really important. And then in terms of don'ts, uh, we again touched on this, I think James did when he talked about how company leaders filled that leadership vacuum um, with the US government. And that is, even though things are uncertain, don't keep company leaders under wraps. They should be visible they should be communicating internally and externally with empathy uh, because after all, it's that human connection that's the very foundation for person-to-person -person communication. Terrific. Rachel? 
I do think there was a world, you know, where companies would go dark faced with a crisis. They might have some very formal crisis management around it, but then they may, you know, cut other activity. You cannot do that in the current world. You cannot go dark anymore. Consumers, employees, other stakeholders won't accept it. So that's why it's key to keep that dialogue going at all times. And I think, you know, there are many companies who are getting it right. I think there are some companies who are still uncomfortable with it, but the old rules don't apply anymore. You can't go dark. You can't behind, hide behind the wall. You can't, you know, totally control the messaging at all time. And that just requires a different mentality around your communication, basically. Terrific. James? Uh, well, my, my don't would actually be a more positive one, which is um, don't be afraid to say that you don't know where things are, what to do right now, because there are a lot of questions around how things are playing out. But I mean, it's, it's about following that up with a do, which is to say that you're working on it and you've got everybody in your organization working and doubling down on it. And there were some fantastic examples throughout the pandemic of CEOs willing to come out and actually, you know, for the first time. And, and they're, they're very hardwired to have all the answers, right? So to actually come out and say, actually, we don't have all the answers right now, but believe us, we are putting every resource available on it to be able to resolve it. And my other kind of do is to stay human just to recognize that you, know, you are all humans in your organizations, you're all people and you are selling and talking and, and interacting with other people. And, and I think that kind of empathetic and realization is a, is a move that I really hope is, is here to say, uh, here to stay, sorry. And uh, so yeah, let's, let's see how that plays out. Artie? So my do would be um, in order for all of what we're saying to be authentic and to resonate, um, it has to be around action and not just communications. And just to emphasize again that PR must, must operate at the policy level within their organizations for any of this to actually resonate. And my, my don't, would, it's sort of a don't, it's like don't forget to track how language is, is, is evolving and changing. I mean, one of the reasons that Ben and Jerry's, I know this is B2C, but one of the reasons their response to Black Lives Matter stood out so much as they were willing to use the language of the moment, which was about white supremacy, which was about dismantling that. And, and I think that brands have to be really careful because you know words and phrases that were perfectly fine a year ago may outdate themselves. So really kind of keep track of what's happening in the culture um, with some of, you know, especially people that are really on the forefront. Now it's time for our red questionnaire. This is where we ask the same questions of different guests to better understand how they operate and what inspires them. So let's welcome my colleague, Georgina Thompson, to introduce our guest for this episode. Thank you, Nancy. This month for our Red Questionnaire, I'm delighted to be joined by Jeffrey Whitford. Jeffrey is Head of Sustainability and Social Business Innovation and Branding at Millipore Sigma, which is a leading life sciences company. Not only is he a global leader in green chemistry, product recycling, environmental sustainability and social responsibility, he was just recently named on Fast Company's Most Creative People in Business list. He's also the PR News CSR Professional of the Year. Jeffrey, thank you so much for spending time today and being part of our Red Sky Thinking podcast. It's great to be here, Georgina. I'm excited to have the conversation. 
So we have about six or seven topics to cover in this part of the podcast, and I'm really looking forward to hearing some of your views and your experiences and hopefully some more about um, you and your role also. So should we kick off with the questions? Let's do it. A little bit nervous, but I'm going to power through and hope I don't, uh, don't mess it up too bad. I'm sure you won't. I'm very excited also. So the first question that we have for you, Jeffrey, is what was your first job? So my first job was actually a busboy at a restaurant in the town where I grew up. Um, it was like a, I was super excited to get that job. Um, I had a friend who worked there um, who I really looked up to. She was older than me and I was like, this would be awesome. And I got it and I spent you know, a couple of years like literally just cleaning tables, taking dirty dishes away, smelling gross at the end of the night because a restaurant is not exactly the you know the best smelling place when you're not you know sitting in the dining room like in the other places it's a whole different story um it was very clean so not to give you any perceptions that it wasn't it was very clean it was just like there's a lot of smells um but it was i think really a it's very indicative of me i'm a person who like you give me a task and i focus in on it really hard and go at it and you know I was like hustling I was like how do I get these tables cleaned and so we can get the next people in and all about like the throughput um and making sure that it was a clean nice experience and people's uh people's stuff got cleared off the tables and to this day still um I am guilty of like bussing my own table and I will stack things up and clean them up uh for whoever is going to be doing that job just because I remember doing it and so I try to make it as neat and easy as possible for uh for people today that's so cool. I completely um, sort of um, resonate with that. That was one of my first jobs as well. And it's amazing. You have to do a million jobs at once and be so sort of, um, you know, switched on to do a job like that as well. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, it was, it was a good training ground. You know, I think it's yes. one of those things where relatively simple, but a really good training ground, just about things like customer service um, and paying attention to those things and um, helping move things along and how you're a part of a bigger team. Completely agree. And so Jeffrey, are you an early riser or do you burn the midnight oil? Um, I am neither. I am uh, not an early riser. If I have to, I can. Um, there's a lot of times, especially with the work that I do working in a global role, we will have some very strange time meetings. And so I have been known to get up um, at 2 or 3 a.m. to do video conference calls and people are quite shocked. But I think, you know, it goes back to that whole idea of um, committing in the right circumstance. I'm not going to do that all the time. Uh, but I am definitely a person who I need eight hours of sleep. So I do not stay up late. I try to like shut it down uh, by 10, 1030 and uh, get some shut eye so then I can be ready to go the next morning. But I am definitely, uh, I would say lean more towards the early riser than the burning the midnight oil. And how many stamps do you have in your passport? I'd imagine quite a few. <laughs> Yeah, this is a fortunate one. I would say the bane of my existence still is with Australia because they do a digital stamp. And I was like, I come all this way and I get a digital stamp. Are you kidding me? <laughs> I was like, of all places, this is the one where I really wanted an actual stamp. But I think I am around, um, I think, 34 to 35 stamps in my passport. Do you have any favorite countries in that list? Um you know, one of the things that like I judge because I travel so much is with 
the frequency that I go places, it's really rare that I am like, oh, I've got to come back and spend time in this specific location just because I think there's a realization now of how big the world is and how many really unique and interesting places there are to see um, that I have had a couple of those moments where I'm just like, this is really fascinating to me because it was different than my expectations. And I think one of those places in particular is Israel. Um, I was fortunate enough to go there for, um, to visit with some of my colleagues in our office in Rehovot, just outside of Tel Aviv, and then um, our office in Jerusalem. And it was just something completely different, I think, because of how the media portrays um, certain areas of the world, you have an expectation going in. And my expectation was just completely different. Um, or my experience was completely different than the expectation. And I think that creates this unique experience then where you're like, there's more to explore here. And Jeffrey, uh, I'm, I'm assuming you'll have some really interesting inputs on this question around your favorite social media uh, channels. Um, I'd imagine you um, follow quite a, a lot of, you know, um, sort of sustainability focused channels, um, but I'm sure you have a mix. So um, yeah, I wondered if you wouldn't mind just giving us an overview as to your favorite social media. You know, it's funny when it comes to social media, like there is this weird balance I think I've tried to strike between um, work and personal life. And it's difficult because I think there are certain things and elements of social media that you hear so much about and, you know, the good and then the struggles and the challenges with it. And I think that is, you know, certainly in the past few weeks been, um, hyper-focused on because it is just the the onslaught of social media has been so strong and with a lot of big things happening certainly here in the U.S. Um, so I have been taking just like a little bit of a reprieve but I think one of the things for me is I've really gotten to the point now um, and I think you know you hear this a lot from people where Instagram being a very social medium and you get this window into people's lives and um you know, sometimes it's overly curated um, and not necessarily realistic, but then sometimes you come across these things that are just, um, I would say pressure relievers that just make you laugh um, and take things a little less seriously. And I think that's been one of the things that I've really um, appreciated. I think, you know, when I think about work, LinkedIn is really one of the channels that for me is one of the most informational uh, especially with keeping up with a lot of things going on within uh, corporate responsibility or sustainability around the world. And that network of people is probably the most effective in understanding, you know, remarkable things that people are doing. And that's one thing where it's a great source for me to be able to then point my colleagues leadership to, to showcase them some of the like best practices work. Um, that other companies are doing and how do we look at that and, you know, you know, see where are the things that are relevant to us and how we can, um, how we can up our game. But I think, you know, for me, the two kind of go-tos are um, Instagram for just like kind of some mindless relaxation and uh, laughter and then LinkedIn for really more of the, I would say, information-driven um, capacity building work that I, I try to do. 
And Jeffrey, obviously there's a few headlines. Um, there's, li- there's little space in the headlines right now for, <laughs> in, us, in the US especially, but, yeah. um, you know, <laughs> it's a little bit competitive over there. Um, and I guess globally as well, you know, there's only sort of a couple of headlines that are, are making it through. Um, but I wondered um, what headline is grabbing your attention and kind of if we read up on anything this month, what, what do you recommend we should be reading um, and why? You know, one of the things that I have been, you know, a lot of my work, a majority of my work is focused on, um, is focused on climate and climate change and how do we work with that? And I think there are going to be some really interesting moments um, coming up in regards to changes forthcoming from the U.S., um, specifically with the Paris Climate Accord um, and the potential for the U.S. rejoining that. Um, I think one of the things is that that is almost this, I, I don't want to say distractor, um, but I think the, the point of the matter here and what you've seen or started to see in regards to climate is more specific actions. And I think that's the kind of thing that I always am reverting people back to is rather than taking a look at the commitments, how are we taking a look at the action that's taking place? and the change that is happening. Because I think the proof points for people in what is such a contentious topic, and you know, I, I hope we move past the, is it real, is it not real conversation? Because at the end of the day, it actually doesn't really matter if it is real or not real. Um, what you think, there is an economic opportunity that supports this. And so you know, if you don't believe it, there's still an opportunity for you. And if you do believe it, there is like this double opportunity for you where we can, you know, change the trajectory of, of where the earth is warming to. But then also there is an economic or business opportunity that provides, you know, a potential avenue to solve a bunch of other problems as well, be that um, job opportunities for people. How do we upskill or retrain people so that they have a future in some of these jobs, especially in industries where those jobs have been decreasing and will continue to decrease? You can just look at the economics and it's not, it's not going to work out or continue. So how are we proactive instead of just hoping that the thing that we used to know comes back? And I think that's always you know, a tough part for people to digest because at the end of the day, change is such a difficult thing, um, regardless, especially when you've known something, to have that type of massive change come to you, it is hard. And how do we make that easier for people? So I think the thing that I'm looking for in the coming month, um, or heck, probably a decade, is specific action that showcases our progress towards it. Because if you look at I think all of the work that's happening, you're starting to see these major kind of goals come out um, and the goals are great, but how do we get from goals to actual progress and action and some visibility or transparency into the progress we're making and where those areas are for us to continue our focus and to drive down um, emissions. So cliches are cliches for a reason. What is your favorite cliche? So one of the cliches that I probably use the most, and I'm going to go between two actually, is um, I use a win-win-win situation. So most people say it's a win-win situation, um, and you know I think 
one of the things there is we add a, an extra win on there because in the work that we do, and I say this from working in the space of corporate responsibility for about a decade now, which is kind of hard to say out loud, um, there was always this extra burden that I think is starting to melt away a little bit about the business case or proving the value. But we always said, okay, if we can not only solve one problem, but then meet another issue and then add an additional thing that we can take care of. So we kind of go over and above that whole thing. And, you know, some people will say that, you know, you're not going to be able to satisfy, you know, two opposing um, stakeholders. And I think we have really put our mind to it that gosh darn it, we're not only going to satisfy both of them, we're going to figure out to add a third piece of there that, that's value for people. Um, so there's one. And then the second one is um, pushing the envelope. So I am maybe notorious for this concept of really how do we push the boundary um, to the envelope, the boundary, whatever you want to use there, of things to find the place where people are most uncomfortable or they're at their edge because I think that's really where you find um, some of the most interesting components of what we as individuals can solve for and I think the whole idea of pushing that like, like I always we have a clear understanding we don't go past the boundary like we're not breaking the rules to the point where we got a problem because in our I think in our space trust is the most important thing that we can have. And as soon as we lose trust of the stakeholder, like this is done. Um, and so we have to keep that in mind. But when we push the boundary, if you think about it in a large scale organization, so I work for a company um, with, you know, more than 22,000 employees in the business that I work in. And overall in our company, there are probably, I want to say 56 or 57,000 people and annual turnover of 16 billion euro. There gets to the point where you wanna do things that are comfortable, that you know what the outcomes are gonna be, but knowing that does not move you forward, I think it, it continues to produce the same. So how do we push those boundaries and those edges and, and the envelope to the edge? Because that's where really interesting stuff happens. And for my team, um, the analogy I use is we, our jobs are to throw ourselves up the brick against the brick wall, slide back down, pick ourselves up and just rinse and repeat because we are asking people to do things that are wildly different um, because this isn't commonplace. This isn't the norm. And that at times can be difficult, but I think it is such a valuable place to be at. And for my team in particular, they are remarkable warriors and champions of this. Um, and I think we're all a good support system, but it takes a lot of wear and tear on you to be those people who are constantly pushing the envelope or the boundary. And so I think that's probably one of the ones that I use most frequently with my team um, because it is so relevant to what we do and the struggle is 100% real. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed our chat today and it's been lovely um, having you a part of it. And I've definitely learned a lot. Um, and thank you for some laughs as well. 
<laughs> um, we really appreciate it. Thank you, Georgina. And, uh, you know, not making me too anxious, you know, a few things, you know, there are kind of curveballs and you're like, what am I going to say? Is it the right thing? But um, the conversation has been great. And I will certainly take you up on an offer to do a deep dive into sustainability if you ever want to in the future. It's such a fascinating topic and there is a lot of cool work to be done. So we're looking forward to it. So Jeffrey, what is your message of encouragement and enlightenment? I think my message of encouragement and enlightenment is really about um, looking towards the future and positivity. I think we have, as a world, this year has just been, I mean, obviously like unlike anything we could have imagined and it's been so difficult and uneven for so many people. And then on top of a pandemic, there have just been so many other things. And you turn a corner and you're like, 2020 can't get any worse. And then it suddenly does. And you're like, good gravy. Like, at what point is this year over? Um, but I really think about these moments. And that's what's stuck with me and actually been the thing that has helped me kind of move from point to point is these moments in time that have happened that are even small, but they are so positive in seeing something happen, in seeing an organization, you know, we work with um, a, a locally owned black bookstore in St. Louis where we have, you know, one of our big offices um, and coming out of the um, backside of the murder of George Floyd and I would say an increased just awareness about the opportunity for us to really support that community. One of the things that happened was we did a major book purchase to support one of our programs where we you know, hadn't done anything like this before, but we just had this realization that we're all about helping to encourage hands-on science and to encourage children in particular to think about science as a career. This is not something that happens you know, frequently, usually what you hear, especially for those who are not well represented. So um, people of color and women is that science isn't for them. And uh, you know, whoever is telling children this, like they just should stop talking first of all, but like this is an opportunity for us to actually change that. We are huge believers in modeling as a method to increase participation and engagement and equity in um, science for those communities. And I think this is really one of those places where we're able to model that by giving children something, and especially for young girls and young Black girls, um, Ada Twist Scientist is one of the books that we're purchasing and we're going to be giving out when we get back to being able to do our Curiosity Labs in person. But just to showcase um, young children in these roles where they have previously not been seen, I think that is such a powerful thing. And it's moments like that, that really are the things that remind me, despite all of the other nonsense happening around us, and then the travesty of the pandemic, that we as humankind are so incredibly, 
I think, capable of coming together and solving so many of these things and really solutions. We talk about solutions at our um, and our business all the time. And I think this is one of those cases where that so resonates me is that there are so many solutions that we're capable of and we just have to like focus in and start addressing these things. And that's, to me, um, that that moment of, of positivity and encouragement is these small things that, you know, seemingly, you know, to some don't, don't mean that much, but to others, they're just bigger than you could even imagine. And those are the things that get me from kind of point A to point B to point C and so on. And so that's what I'm focusing in on and, and really driving our work towards um, you know, we've got the systematic work, but we've also got this kind of point, point in time work as well. Thank you for listening to the Red Sky Fuel for Thought podcast. We hope you'll join us again for more of the latest communications insights and trends from the team at Red Havas. Don't forget to subscribe to the show using your favorite podcasting app. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. Also remember to rate and review today's show. We'd love to hear from you.